Hello, welcome to the Quest series. My name is Alan Mulhern. This is the mini-series within it, The Crisis of Our Times, Part 4. Firstly, an announcement. A podcast in the Spanish language is shortly to be released on this platform. Its reference will be Season 3, Episode 1. So it's a new season, Season 3. And it is a translation of a previous episode in English from Season 2, Episode 28, which is titled The Moment of Truth. I hope to follow it with more podcasts in Spanish. It's tempting to think of the coronavirus as a black swan event, something totally unexpected, perhaps a virus that has mutated from the animal world to humans, as it were an external shock to the world system. Economists term such events as exogenous, that is originating external to our known systems, rather than being endogenous originating somehow internally within them. Exogenous variables are very difficult to predict. In the last podcast, I argued that the pandemic was predicted many times. If we were not prepared for it, it's not for lack of warning. At this time, we don't know exactly the origin of the coronavirus. However, I would be very surprised if it was an exogenous event, something that came into our political, social, economic and health systems from the outside it is far more likely to be meaningfully implicated in the Chinese and world economy. That is, endogenous in some sense. For example, if it is a mutation from bats and their insertion into the human food chain, then it may be related to the pressures to feed a huge population with a limited food base. Also, we know and ignore the appalling way we treat most animals, especially those we consume, and diseases among animals emerge from this and are transmitted to humans. However, if the virus did escape from a laboratory, a more sinister possibility, then clearly this is an event endogenous within the world political system. That is, it is derived from it. After all, there are arsenals of pathogens of many types that have been produced in various countries. I think it is safe to say that if a weapon can be produced it will be. The spread of the virus is indisputably facilitated by globalisation of the world economy, which again is endogenous to part and parcel of our economic system. So far then, I'm arguing that the coronavirus was not unexpected, rather that we were unprepared, and that it is meaningfully implicated in our world system. Now, for those who say that current economic and political calamities have been caused by the virus, and imply that without it, these would not have happened. I've argued consistently that the virus has triggered the collapse of an inflated boom and exposed the fault lines in the world economy. It is very harmful, yes, but it also triggers and reveals. The virus has not arrived out of the blue and collapsed a healthy world economy. Podcast episode 27 argued that it has detonated an inflated structure that was already dangerously fragile. It is worthwhile bearing in mind what these frailties are because these are the fracture lines along which the world economy will most probably split. These include the policies of central banks and governments that have pushed unprecedented quantities of money into the banks and financial markets, creating an inflated bubble which is in imminent danger of bursting and only kept inflated by more injections of government money. 
artificially low interest rates, maintained by government, distorting the real economy and completely mispricing risk throughout the economic and financial system. This produces zombie banks like the European banking system or zombie firms. These are the walking dead of the economic system who are kept afloat by extremely cheap loans because interest rates are so low. Overinflated stock markets disconnected from the real economy. This is a consequence of the loose monetary policy just mentioned and this bubble will burst with enormous consequences to the real economy. Next point, the unreformed and dangerously fragile European banking system has left the whole banking sector extremely vulnerable. This is something of great importance to the rest of the world since many of the banks are very large and systemically, that is globally, significant. This means that although Europe may seem a long way away from America, the collapse of the European banking system will have instantaneous impact upon the American financial system. The world is an integrated financial network. Next point, the increased fracturing of the European Union. Britain is already in its transitional exit year. At this moment in May 2020, Italy and Spain are demanding from the European Central Bank that grants should be given, not loans, to bail out their economies from the impacts of the coronavirus and their recessions and are threatening to leave unless these transfers are given. The disintegration of the European Union will be a devastating blow to the world economy and will also trigger the European banking collapse just mentioned. Next point, the slowdown and stagnation of total factor productivity in the world economy. This is the inner motor of the economic system, which is now being inflated by money injections instead of having real productivity increases at the centre of the economy. The reversal of the long Chinese economic boom, which has now reached its day of reckoning. The fracturing of world trade relationships including but not only between the United States and China, a situation resembling that of the 1930s where protectionism, that is tariffs and restrictions to trade, became rife, thus provoking a contraction in world GDP. The extraordinary rise in national debts, followed by corporate and private debt, which reached 350% of the world economy in 2019. We can expect defaults on national debt, sovereign default, to accelerate in the immediate future in the emerging and developed economies, as well as massive corporate and private default. These can easily collapse the financial system. The highly dangerous practices of the world's shadow banking system, as another example, which can crash the financial system also. And a final point for now, there has been growing inequality of income and wealth for many decades, actually since the mid-1970s, but this has accelerated over the last decade, opening up a dangerous chasm between the rich, the super rich and the increasing mass of poor people. As well as inequality, we have rising absolute poverty in many parts of the globe with increasing precarious and unstable conditions for those at the bottom of the pyramid. A great global crash and depression will push billions into desperate conditions. Mass migrations will become unstoppable. This is even in developed economies. We are simply exaggerating a very severe social and political problem. By current policies of hyper-Keynesianism, 
that is injections of artificial money into the fiscal system through increased government expenditure as the taxation base diminishes and also the increased monetary creations propping up the obscene stock market excesses which are as mentioned completely disconnected from the real economy but are providing enormous wealth to the financial elite. This is not only bad economics it is disastrous social policy and also morally reprehensible. All these distress points in the world economy are set to fracture even more deeply and in some cases explode. These are exasperated, magnified by the coronavirus, not caused by it. These fault lines or frailties were in existence long before the virus. Viruses, after all, feed and thrive on the weakness of the host. You may notice that many of the above variables are financial and monetary and are the direct result of government policy. And this is the central point. The policies pursued by government in response to the 2008 crisis have laid the basis for a much bigger crash. China, incidentally, is not exempt from any of the above. Many of the above variables have system-wide global impact and can produce economic and financial collapse and subsequently a great global depression. The only thing that stops this is more government bailouts, which, since they have no real savings, can only come from lending, manipulation of government bond policy, and artificial money creation by one form or another. Rabbits being pulled out of the magician's hat. When the world's lenders stop lending, then the indebted governments of the West will resort, they are already doing so, to direct artificial money creation on a massive scale, which will lead to hyperinflation in some goods and deflation in others, as well as stagnation in the real economy, and only exasperate the problem. In other words, the policies of present governments, with their unprecedented bailouts, are the road to economic and financial ruin. These policies are like giving drunks more alcohol next morning to steady them, whereas the answer is to give up the addiction and weather the storm so as to come out the other side, hopefully reformed and with a new worldview. But we have not realised even the early stages of this process. We, that is the world economy. We do not realise we are addicted, and we do not know that we are in fact sick, ill, and destructive to ourselves and those around us, as well as a scourge to the earth. We believe we are innocent, and wish to get back to the position we were in before the present difficulties. It's tempting to fantasise that the coronavirus has psychiatrically sectioned a crazy world economy. I gave a model in episode 27, the first in the Crisis of Our Times series, as follows. 1. Approaching storm. 2. The storm hits. 3. Policy response. And a pause, or lull in the storm. 4. Economic contraction and financial chaos or collapse. 5. Great global depression. 6. Civil disturbance, political radicalism, dangers of war. 7. Fallout and emergence in a radically changed world. In episode 27, I described the coming storm, the lead-up to the present crisis. We have all witnessed the storm hit in February, March of this year. This has morphed into an economic and financial crisis, 
with numerous political crises of the first order in the wings. We are now at stage three, policy response. The UK and the US were first off the block with enormous injections and support measures. The European Union is slower to follow because it has none of the unity of a single nation state. Other countries have done likewise. The general intention has to come in very strong from the start with monetary and fiscal policy in the developed economies, prop up the markets and indeed the whole economy with unlimited money. Shock and awe was the military metaphor that was used, leaving the enemy or your allies in no doubt that you will do whatever it takes. Consequently, at this moment, there is a pause, a breathing space, and fear diminishes. Stock markets have done a significant recuperation. If only the virus would go away, things could return to normal. But the costs have been enormous, and for this there will be a reckoning. And the authorities hope they can face this when it comes. Kick the can down the road until it becomes larger and an immovable force. This lull in the storm applies to some developed countries who have the resources to engage in powerful policy responses. This option is not available to many emerging countries. With regard to the seeds of the present crash being laid down in the last crash of 2007-8 and the inflationary boom that can possess the economy, in 2014 I wrote a poem on the subject using the analogy from Greek mythology of the famous flight of Icarus and his father Daedalus, who escaped from where they were confined by Minos, king of Crete. The story of the myth has served as a moral lesson across the ages. Here it is for our own times. Bold Icarus with father lay, in prison quite forgot, at pleasure of King Minos, Condemned were they to rot. Escape did not seem possible, confined by triple walls. On dizzy cliffs the prison perched, grim death would follow fall. But Daedalus, his father, would not accept defeat. He was the master craftsman who felt that he could cheat these walls and chains and fearsome cliffs. To cunning would succumb. If only he could find a plan, from Minos they would run. As he watched through prison bars, the free birds fall and rise. His restless mind conceived a scheme, escape into the skies. Light feathered wings he did construct, some wax then used as glue. He made a harness out of rope, from cliffs at dawn they flew. With only this proviso, he cautioned to his son, Fly not too high, the wax will melt, on rising near the sun. Into the blue Empyrean, they soared like joyful birds. But with the prison walls now gone, the sun forgot those words. In wild ecstatic flight, he rose, below his father saw. The feathers melt, the wings collapse, down to the earth he falls. And so it is with capital. 
it longs for its escape. From prisons of stagnation, fresh schemes it then creates. To heights it is addicted, forgets the recent past, denies its limitations. This time the boom will last. Into dizzy heights it soars, self-interest turns to greed. What was reason now goes mad, the vultures come to feed. But at the height the bubble cracks, the boom turns into bust. It goes the way that all flesh goes, returning into dust. Those of us who rise so high with caution cast to wind, Forgetting roots, disdain the rest, who think we've never sinned. Those of us who think we're gods and masters of our fate. Like Icarus, our wings may melt on nearing heaven's gate. It was my intention to take a long lead-in to the present topic of the spiritual crisis of our times, examining the world's religions and mystical traditions. But given the current emergencies, pandemic, economic, financial, climatic, political, and shortly those of famine, yes, I believe there'll be famine in some parts of the world shortly, and the time constraints of these podcasts, I'm going to get to the point. My essential argument is that there is some force in the human species that is so destructive that it can end life on this planet. I think of this force as demonic, even at times satanic. This gives us a framework for considering a collective dimension to the spiritual crisis of our time. By collective, I mean the external world to ourselves. So, on the collective level, can we deal with our own darkness, especially as it is expressed in our economic, political and military systems? And on the individual level, do we have the resources to face our own emotional complexes, traumas, addictions, abandonments, abuses, let's just call it our shadow, and do we have the resources to find our moral compass in very confusing times and release the light that is within us. I suggest that for this we need a combination of a deep spiritual practice, a self-exploration journey based on depth psychology, that is, taking into account our unconscious, and an overall critical assessment of the collective. In the next few podcasts, I shall outline what this spiritual psychological collective vision quest might consist of. Demonic is a powerful term. By it, I mean possessed by malevolent intent, ruled by passions, appetites and compulsions which are ungovernable by reason or ethical concern. The demonic is ultimately self-defeating, though short-term gains are very important to it. At its extreme, it is life-destroying, for which the term satanic is appropriate, that is, a force which is evil and destructive to the core of life. This demonic force is most clearly expressed in the systems we create. For example, our economic system, which is hostile to most life on Earth, which can be simply termed business civilization, that now embraces the whole globe, and, for all its material success, is characterised by compulsive madness, another feature of the demonic. It also has colossal addictive tendencies, which we know are destructive to life and ourselves, but which we cannot halt. 
The demonic clearly expresses itself in the hate of some religions and political ideologies, in wars, inflictions of abuse and traumas upon others, which our history is filled with. The last century saw outstanding examples of this, such as in the conflicted and deeply malevolent character of Adolf Hitler, who, if he had possessed the means, and he was only just short of it in terms of the nuclear weaponry to come, would have led the world into slavery or utter destruction. This is surely a case study for what can happen in the 21st century, with devastating global consequences. A borderline and deeply damaged narcissistic character can bluff his way to power, of course it could be a woman in the future, often aided by a revolutionary or violent group, avail himself of the powers of the state, brainwash and traumatise its citizens, blame internal and foreign forces for the colossal failures of his own programme, take the country into internal and external war, project hatred onto enemies for which he mobilises the forces of annihilation. History is littered with examples and they exist in our times across the globe. I don't believe that the human race is principally or only demonic, rather that humans are actually divided into opposites of light and dark. The dark has the demonic as one of its possibilities, while the light is that which seeks healing, growth, and which transcends the realm of the ego in its selfish animal desires and obsessions, and embraces life itself, the good. Humans are split between these two positions, which are intimately linked. I believe these great opposites of the light and the dark have evolved out of nature and are ultimately universal principles, which is to say they are opposites that underlie not only life but also all pre-life formations. As with the dancing Shiva, the Nataraja, in Hindu mythology, who with one hand drums creation into existence and with the other holds the fire of destruction, they are ultimate archetypal principles of creation and destruction and are integral to the cosmos itself. Such a conflict of opposites comes into focus in every age of crisis and, like the crises of past ages, ours too may rebirth a spiritual vision if it confronts its darkness and embraces a new vision, the light. For this it needs not only sound argument and science, but a spiritual and moral vision and experience from the depths of the psyche. It needs to have its vision renewed, the doors of perception cleansed. In other words, this is the crisis of the 21st century, that we are possessed by forces we can call demonic, which are driving us to destruction. It is not enough that we just see our shadow and know our darkness. It is necessary to seek the light which gives birth to new vision. Out of the spiritual crisis, only when fully experienced, can there be a rebirth of the current age. The evidence, however, points to the great difficulty of human beings voluntarily doing this. So I consider that it would only be by the hard path, that of trauma and suffering, that this may occur. Now, of course, this is not the first time by any means that such feelings have been expressed. Apocalypse means a revealing 
sections of humanity have often been convinced of a great reckoning about to happen. The corruption of the systems they inhabit. The longing for some ultimate justice. The belief that only a few, if any, will survive the disasters ahead. The early Christians for many decades were totally convinced of the imminent second coming, which was probably the most common prophecy throughout the New Testament. There are literally hundreds of references to it. Here are a few. Revelation 1.7 Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of all the earth will wail on account of him. Matthew 24.44 Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at the hour you do not expect. John 14.3 And if I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus says, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Matthew 24, 42-44 Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew twenty six sixty four, Jesus said to him, But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven and many, many more prophecies of the second coming are throughout the New Testament. The end time, the second coming, the imposition of judgment and justice, is a theme that never disappears from history. It is closely allied with the belief that the world is inevitably corrupt, sinful and decadent. These themes are central to the book of Revelation, the last in the New Testament, which although written in the post-Nero Roman Empire in the reign of Domitian, who was assassinated in 96 AD, had its roots in prophecies scattered throughout the Old Testament, the books of Daniel and Ezekiel, for example. The belief in divine retribution for the sinful ways of men and kings is a long-standing story. Indeed, the whole history of the expectation of a Messiah who would bring justice and the ways of God to Israel goes back at least to the period of exile of the Jewish people in Babylon. In the book of Revelation, the four horsemen of the apocalypse come at the beginning and the world is possessed by demonic forces. The book is an extraordinary vision of titanic struggles between the forces of good and evil, the latter being represented by unforgettable characters and places. For example, the harlot, the beast, the false prophet and Babylon itself. By the end, these forces of evil are defeated. Justice and judgment are given. A new heaven and new Jerusalem are established. The river of life and the tree of life heal the nations. The curse of sin is ended. Christ's second coming is imminent. The Gnostics were even more radical than the Christians, for they saw not only the Roman Empire, but the whole world and even the cosmos that they knew in their very nature as sinful, that the only goal was a God almost outside the cosmos. There was a divine mission in this world, the gathering of the scattered light, separating it from the almost overwhelming darkness and transporting it to the realm of light in another world altogether. Scarcely has there been a more extreme version of just how unreformable the corruption in this world is. Ragnarok is the end time prophesied in Nordic mythology, in which mighty, dark forces rise and in contrast to the book of Revelation, destroy the gods and the world as it is known. It begins with wars and battles, 
where brothers kill brothers and fathers kill sons, followed by three winters with no summer. Fenrir, the wolf, breaks free from his bonds, his mouth wide open, his upper jaw reaches to the heavens, his nostrils spray flames, his lower jaw touches the earth, while the great serpent, Jormungandra, emerges from the sea and at Fenrir's side sprays venom throughout the air and the sea. The wolf swallows the sun and his brother swallows the moon. The stars disappear, the earth shakes, mountains topple and all restraints break down. The gods awaken and after council battle is engaged, all is fear. Odin advances against Fenrir but is swallowed by him, though his son rips apart the great wolf's mouth and kills it. Freya fights fiercely with Sutra but falls for lack of a sword. The hound Gamera, the worst of the monsters, breaks free from his bonds and fights the god Tyr, resulting in both of their deaths. Thor kills the great serpent, but is poisoned by it and dies. As befitting the Nordic warrior peoples, there is immense destruction, but the gods are largely destroyed and the earth catches fire. In some versions of Ragnarok, there are rising waters. As a prophetic description of rising sea levels and potential nuclear holocaust of the age we live in, this is a remarkable description. There is some salvation in their grim vision. Two humans have survived by hiding in the wood and drinking the morning dew. From them a new population can be born. The earth re-emerges again and is fruitful once more. It seems that in Ragnarok there is a profound feeling that almost everything has to go, the gods and all, so that a fresh start can be made. Could that be a prophecy also? Will a small section of the human race be the only survivors of a global civilization? The millenarian movements of the 15th and 16th centuries were large-scale movements mostly in Europe, some utopian, some anarchists, some believing in end times, like in the book of Revelation. Many of these movements saw the present order needing a revolution in order to reach a promised land, or at the very least a reform system. These movements played a significant part in the European wars of this period. China also has its version of these movements, the White Lotus and Eight Trigram movements being the best known. These were also combinations of the visionary, apocalyptical, political and the rebellious. Religious beliefs may have faded with the Western scientific revolution, but not the underlying impulse, since the French Revolution in the 19th century and the Russian and Chinese in the 20th followed similar beliefs in the utter corruption of the system they fought against and their determination to bring a complete reformed order into existence all of which fails spectacularly. The road to hell can be paved with good intentions. In our own times, we have climate change, extinction rebellion, and if we examine the visions that I've given in the last few podcasts, there are millenarian aspects to those as well. We live in times of apocalyptical fears and prophecies. My belief in the demonic aspects of human nature although it is primarily a psychological statement, has been shared throughout history 
by many movements, though these were often of a political and religious nature in previous periods. It is tempting to think that spiritual matters only concern individuals and their spiritual struggle, their own fulfilment, self-actualization and individuation. I don't deny these things are essential. I am a Jungian psychotherapist after all, but when we are in our own worlds, we may stay in them. It seems to me that we need a vision that addresses the needs of individuals for their spiritual growth and the needs also for collective transformation. We need a moral vision that stretches into the world of politics, economics and ecology at the very least. Purely individual concerns are important, I agree, but the world crisis is reaching such an intensity and the prospects in front of humanity are so serious and dark that a collective vision is required in order to provide the vision of a world that might stand a chance of surviving the times to come. Religions and their spiritual traditions are not just a private spiritual matter, but an opening out to the whole of human society, nature, the planet, and even the cosmos. This is how great religions have been in the past, but where, oh where, are the great spiritual visions of the present? For me, I do not believe in any personal god or devil. However, I have little objection to those who do believe in such things, providing that they do not have too much power, and providing their religions are not serving the purposes of warfare or hatred. I would much prefer that people believe in a god of some sort and have a decent moral structure that can guide them. However, religions are full of projections of ourselves into the realms of the gods and the underworld. Rather, like some Hindus, I believe in a cosmic intelligence, so vast that words fall hopelessly short of describing it. I believe that the cosmos is pregnant with consciousness, and that in some corners of it, consciousness, far more evolved than ours, exists. I believe the cosmos is in an eternal process of creation and destruction. I sense that the Western scientific revolution has emptied the religions of the past out of its psyche, only to discover the old mysteries and new forms. I think that at the far reaches of science, and now I use metaphor, we are seeing the face of God through a glass darkly. I believe the outreaches of science, metaphysical speculation, but most directly mystical experience, can glimpse this shadowy presence and realise that we too are an evolving part of this cosmic intelligence, that it is not sin but ignorance, lack of gnosis that prevents us seeing the truth, that it is our inner demons that bind us and from which we should be freed.